Question, is there really that big of a difference between known aquatic species and sea monster? I, uh, I heard someone uh, say uh, not too long ago that uh, experts now think <clears throat> that the uh, Loch Ness monster is really just a giant 20-foot eel. What a relief. I think this whole time I was worried there might be some sort of sea monster. This is part eight of our ongoing somewhat episodic series, uh, Church and Science. And uh, I'm off script here a little bit, just in case people are wondering. And I don't want to advocate underdressing uh, at the church on Melrose, especially when you're on the pulpit. But this lapel mic that they got here, at the, the, the pulpit here, clips right to your t-shirt, no problem. Just in case you're wondering. Uh, okay, if you were to mention to someone that you saw an object in the sky that you could not identify, uh, and especially if um, it's known that you know a little something about aviation and aeronautics, I'm guessing you would get a very different uh, response or reaction from others than if you were to say you saw a UFO. By the way, I know the more uh, vogue or fashionable term is UAP now. UFO is uh, sort of uh, obsolete. Unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, you would get a very different reaction despite the fact that uh, an expression like an object I could not identify and a UFO um, can, I think, naturally be thought to have quite the same meaning uh, because I think it's pretty well understood that no one could ever claim that they saw something that could not be identified by anyone. Now, okay, another question. Uh, suppose someone asks the following question, pretty short, and maybe you've heard a uh, variant on this. I'm, I'm guessing you probably have. So imagine the following question. There were lots of supposed miracles in the distant past, like in the Bible. Why are there no miracles today? So what sort of response uh, might we fashion to, to such a, a question? Well, just a knee-jerk response, I might say something like <clears throat> miracles. Well, uh, People have been to the moon. Uh, and then, of course, the person who asked the question, we know what we're going to get in return, right? That science did that, okay? Uh, and then uh, I personally might say something like, that's a very good point. I think science is quite miraculous. Uh, but, of course, we sort of know where this is headed. Um, whoever asks that question, we can be pretty much rest assured that they're simply going to say that doesn't qualify as a miracle. So now we've got to think, okay, miracles, miracles, miracles. So, uh, just off the top of one's head, um, well, there's uh, Fatima, sometimes known as the miracle of the, of the sun, about 100 years ago, the exorcism of Roland Doe, um, the healing of uh, Luc Bergy, um, Jean-Pierre Belly, and uh, Kelly Hartig, healing, um, recognized by the Catholic Church for whatever that's worth. Uh, now, of course, the response we're going to get, we know what response we're going to get. We try to and, and you saw that as I was pretending I was recounting this in my response to the question, I had to look at my screen because I wanted to make sure I got the names of the miracles right. I couldn't just pull this like at a, at a, you know, at a sports bar or something, just pull it off the top of my head. Because these miracles are not something we commit to memory unless we're, that's kind of part of our 
trade, if we're an expert in such things, modern-day miracles. Um, but um, we're gonna, the response we're going to get is those aren't miracles, right? Is that just coincidence, misunderstanding, misinterpretation? Uh, but the fact here, the point here I want to make is that we would not be surprised by this dialogue. We would not be surprised by the response we got. We had engaged the question, right? We had attempted to, uh, to sincerely engage the question, and we basically just got, right, the door slammed in our face. Those aren't miracles. So why is it that we could be so sure that that's the conversation, that's going to be the dialogue that results from that sort of uh, original question? Uh, there were, I'll repeat the question. There were lots of supposed miracles in the distant past, like in the Bible, why are there no miracles today? And the reason that we run into a dead end is because the original question already asserted that the speaker does not believe in miracles. Right? It's a common trap people get into. But the question just said, uh, there is no such thing as a miracle. Right? So attempting to enumerate miracles is not going to be particularly fruitful. <clears throat> The movie Arrival. Arrival. So we're kind of all over the place here. We're going somewhere. Don't worry. Uh, the movie Arrival. Now, this was, I don't know, eight years ago or something. Not to be confused with the movie The Arrival, which was in the mid-90s, I think. <clears throat> Very different movies. Arrival. Uh, pretty successful uh, sci-fi movie. It was based, a lot of people don't know this, it was based on a really ingenious short story by Ted Chiang. You may not know who Ted Chiang is. Um, but uh, there was a very clever sort of linguistic device he used in the movie. And I'll, I'll flesh a little bit of it out. That's not what this sermon is about, but uh, we're just sort of just paving the way. The thesis of the movie, Arrival, said as simply as possible, is that language shapes reality. Okay? That was the thesis. Um, well, I should have... Should I have said this? That was kind of a spoiler alert. Well, it doesn't really give it away because it's actually kind of, they're upfront about it. You kind of get it. And especially if you read the short story, it's obvious right at the very beginning that there's something going on. Uh, so anyway, I hope I don't blow it for you, for you if you're looking kind of like, uh, just been waiting for like months to find the time to wow, we're watch Arrival. And then they've just kind of blew the story device here. But um, anyway, the thesis though, the thesis is not new. It is very well explored in modern linguistics. The idea that language shapes reality. Um, now, I'm actually going to offer another. Uh, I'm going to offer an example. So, what does that mean? Language shapes reality. We kind of understand the meaning, right? We kind of understand that language shapes reality. Um, I'm going to offer an example of kind of what that means in the form of another question. Okay, we've got a couple more questions coming up too. So, um, so here we go. You ready? Okay. Why is it that when you look in a mirror? Left and right are reversed, but not up and down. Okay, it turns out that for speakers of some languages, the answer to that question is going to be obvious. Okay, speakers for most modern languages, especially Western languages, um, are going to have difficulty with that question. It turns out that there is a language, at least one language, <clears throat> where there is no vocabulary in that language to ask that question in the first place. So that question is simply impossible. Okay. That's kind of what I mean, language shapes reality. Now, uh, in Arrival, okay, 
Now, this is more of a spoiler alert, okay? The whole thing about language shapes reality, that's not a spoiler alert. So you may want to just like cover your ears or something for the next five or 10 seconds here. So this is kind of a spoiler alert if you're really looking forward to the big uh, gotcha moment in uh, Arrival. <clears throat> the degree to which language shapes reality is really profound, okay? Um, the language that the, if you've seen this, you'll already know this, uh, the language the visiting extraterrestrials, Arrival, ET show up, they gift us, gift us, um, as the story goes, uh, a language. And this language ultimately allowed speakers to alter the fabric of time itself. Okay, great storyline device, great device. Worked well in the movie, no question. For our practical understanding of linguistics, probably a bit of a stretch. Um, and then there are lots of modern-day experts in linguistics that would even challenge that thesis itself. They think that language is simply an extension of objective reality. Um, but no matter what, kind of getting to the theme of the sermon today, we do certainly understand that words uh, shape our relations, at least in the sense that um, they define the scope of what ideas or concepts can be communicated between people. And it's certainly, there's an assumption that there's some commonly agreed upon meaning of words and idioms and colloquials. I don't know if you call that shaping reality, but um, so <clears throat> for, the, for the sake of today, speaking of linguistics, uh, we're going to focus on a single word, one word, one word. Well, it's actually, it has a noun form and a, and a, and a verb form. This word is not, so this is church, it's not love, it's not repentance, it's not salvation or any of those great Christian part, part of the, what do they call that, uh, Christianese or whatever. Um, uh, however, however, this word has a, I think, a rather surprising, which is why we're talking about it, or I'm talking about it, a rather surprising relation with these uh, very important central themes of faith. Um, and it may not, that relationship may not necessarily be what a lot of people think, especially now in 2020. The word proof, P-R-O-O-F -R as a noun, thought that that was a big dramatic pause. You're waiting, actually, I lost place in my slides here, <laughs> but it actually worked out perfectly. Proof, proof as a noun, okay, but of course, as a verb, right, a version of proof, uh, to prove, to prove. So we're, I'm just going to give a, offer a few examples, a little bit of a, an examination. Okay, this is 2020, okay? So this is the view we're gonna take, 21st century. There are courtroom proofs, I'll do this slowly, this is kind of important. Courtroom proofs, there are statistical proofs, there are proofs that apply to systems of logical inquiry or discovery, and then there are also mathematical proofs. Courtroom proofs, of course, vary from one legal system to another, and in fact, they may even differ within from one courtroom to a number, uh, another within the same legal system. Uh, statistical proofs, a lot of people don't appreciate this, but I certainly do, hinge critically on the obstinance, or in some cases, uh, the gullibility of the researcher. It's true. Uh, and uh, mathematical proofs uh, likewise hinge completely on axioms. 
Now, okay, I will say that proofs as a standard for a theoretical inquiry are by far the most fascinating. And they tend to arise, as the name suggests, as I kind of mentioned as I was introducing them just a minute ago, they arise from systems of logic. Uh, last century, uh, 20th century, the logical positivists um, played up in grand fashion the notion of falsifiability, term falsifiability. And basically what that means, this is short, very simplified definition, unless a statement or an assertion uh, can be rejected with absolute certainty, uh, the assertion possesses no value. In fact, the term that is often used by positivists is that the statement is meaningless. Uh, pretty powerful, right, to say that the statement is meaningless just because you cannot fall, uh, prove it false with certainty. Uh, I will point out that uh, this term falsifiability uh, it is being, I mentioned this, I know, after sermon, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, falsifiability is routinely misused by the media, uh, and I think uh, that uh, everybody's familiar with this idea, that uh, media tends to misuse uh, themes and concepts and ideas. Um, but in any case, uh, it is misused in such a way, falsifiability, so that by the time uh, some new scientific finding finally trickles its way down to the common consumer of media, it is just mangled beyond recognition. You cannot ever possibly reconstitute any of the, the meaning of what was happening uh, from a scientific perspective. Now, now, proof, because we're talking about proof. There's something I want to point out here. <clears throat> you may be thinking this somewhere in the back of your mind. Uh, there is certainly a, a, what I would consider a more conversational or lay meaning um, definition of proof uh, as like something... Um, some sequence of reason that produces a fact. Okay, this this I'm, I, I, this definition that I just offered—a sequence of reason or a sequence of logic, logic in a very loose ter way, interpretation—that um, produces a fact. Uh, this type of proof, this conversational proof, this lay meaning of proof, pretty unrelated to all the other uh, more rigorous types of proofs, courtroom proofs statistical proofs, logical inquiry, mathematical proofs, actually very different. Uh, but I wanted to mention this that um, because the word proof appears in uh, a, what is called, quote-unquote, a biblical proof, biblical proof, or um, sometimes they're called proof texts. And um, people have different interpretations of what that means, but typically... Um, and you may have your own interpretation. What, what a proof text is, or a biblical proof, sometimes they're, like I feel like we, you know, when you, especially in a place like Church on Melrose, that sermons, um, the, the sermons are, right, they bring to be, together a number of facts, maybe external facts, facts from within God's revelation, and um, serves to highlight some more deeper meaning. Right, because there's this rich right layering of understanding in God's word, and so biblical proofs. I tip, but even though they're not advertised, like I don't come to church thinking oh, I'm going to go hear Damon, you know, deliver a biblical proof. But the idea is basically that it's something that is fashioned a biblical proof or a text proof um, to a lot of people is something an uh, a, an analysis of scripture done by scholarly believers for an audience of other believers, right? You have basically some of the same fundamental tenets, and it's the job of exegetes to sort of bring out some 
right, triangulate a lot of the, right, the ideas from the Bible and, and get a richer understanding. That's a really beautiful thing, actually. Uh, but uh, any discussion of proof, especially in church, would be absent of the idea of biblical proof, would I think be deficient. But the one thing that all of these definitions or all of these uh, contextual uh, meaning, or I could say definition, uh, all of these proofs, whether it's conversational, legal, logical, mathematical, statistical, uh, as used in conversation like a biblical proof, they are all fundamentally persuasive in nature. And persuasive is sort of like a four-letter word. We think of that as being sort of coercive, you know, like a synonym. What's a synonym for persuasive, like coercive? That's like a negative thing. Um, but they're intended to present um, right, new information in a, in a compelling way, right? New information in a compelling way. That's a little bit more innocuous. That's a little bit more innocent. Now... <clears throat> Uh, about two, three years ago, we read through the Bible. We had that big project. I think I will, a little embarrassed to admit, I dropped out. I faded out in a few places, but I think I got most of it. Um, we started off in the Pentateuch, the Bible, first five chapters of the Old Testament. It's kind of a tough read. I mean, Genesis is pretty fun, and Exodus uh, is kind of interesting. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of real interesting, right, a lot of real interesting history and, and involvement, interaction, God and his creation. So that's cool. But you get into Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, but I will mention that what you will find in, in those uh, last three books of the Pentateuch um, are, uh, are references to what I would consider a legal type of proof, a legal type of proof. Uh, and I'm just going to, we're not going to go into detail here because the detail isn't really important, but I just want to give you three locations where you will find uh, a legal uh, proof in the legal sense, the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, and in uh, Numbers in a couple different places in chapter 5. And that's about it, actually, astonishingly. Uh, now, Moving forward, this is a common this is a common misunderstanding. So, and this is clear. Um, a lot of people have made the mistake that in um, uh, the first letter that Paul wrote to uh, the Thessalonians, uh, that he says, "Prove all things." Uh, and I'm going to be reading eventually here from uh, just so you know, New American Standard Bible. So I've been hopping around. I've been using Common English Bible. Uh, and then we have here at the church that's uh, provided for us a new international version. Uh, but in any case, the translation in this particular, for this particular sermon is probably not very important. Uh, but in um, Prove All Things, first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter uh, 5, uh, verse 21. This is not what Paul's saying, prove all things. Um, and even if we didn't have the extant Greek, um, we should give Paul uh, enough credit to know that he's not going to exhort people to try to coerce falsehoods into truths, because you can't prove something that's false, right? We do have the extant Greek, dakamazite, dakamazite. Uh, this is Koine Greek. I think all this stuff, is in, correct me if I'm wrong, Damon, Koine Greek, uh, Old Greek. Some of the language has sort of made its way into modern Greek, but some of it kind of has not. The meanings have evolved a little bit. Uh, this word clearly means to test uh, in Koine Greek, just to test something, test it out. 
Uh, in modern Greek, it, it has a much looser meaning, I think, uh, basically. And, and Greek, um, the verbs, like in Spanish, depend on the person. So it's like you, second person, basically you try. It's like you would dakamazete, <laughs> like you would say something like, try the spinacopita, give it a try, right? Um, and I wanted to, this is the first time, I'm going to speculate that this is the first time that anybody has ever uh, cited uh, Alexander Shulgin in a church. Uh, and you ever read a book, you know, you read a book, and if it's a good book, you'll remember the story, will leave an impression with you. Uh, you'll remember some of the characters. And, uh, and then, but what happens, is, at least with me, is that there'll be a few standout lines, right? Like just where the exposition is so elegant or suddenly a picture just sort of comes to you um, or there's some meaning that really captivates you. And in, in, in this book, Pickle, by Alexander Shulgin, I read this book, this is in the 25 years ago or something like that. There was this quote and it just stuck with me. I mean, it's a long book. And I thought, and it just for some reason, the quote, what he says stuck with me and then as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought that would be a perfect quote. We're talking about Dakamazate, right? To try the difference. And, and I actually found it. I actually found it, uh, the, the quote. It's a hard quote to read because it's really pulled out of context and it's, got, it's written sort of parenthetically. But I'll give it a try because this speaks exactly to the, this one particular application of proof. So this is a quote from the book. <clears throat> and it's speaking of an experimental uh, drug, a, treat, a treatment, basically. He says, there have been reports of several overdoses that prove the intrinsic safety of this compound. Prove is used here in the classic British sense. That is to challenge, like the proof of the pudding is in the eating, is not a verification of quality, but an inquiry into the quality itself. And he notes that the French have simplified this by having two different verbs for to prove. <clears throat> so what does, he, what does he mean? Well, he's actually just drawing attention to the very stark conceptual difference as in to, to prove something by, by trying it, putting it to the test, than as opposed to the actual thing itself, right? <clears throat> it's actually very clever. Uh, and it also really speaks how, and how subtly uh, language can be so impactful. Um, now, okay, moving on here. Uh, Luke, Luke's writing... Uh, Acts in the book of Luke is, I think, very distinct from the other books, um, and it reads almost like a, almost like a modern day science reporter, like something a modern day science reporter would write. It's very, right, kind of to the point. There is an emphasis on just uncovering right information, uh, without it's not a lot of fanfare, not a lot of frills. It's kind of straight to the point. This was written two thousand years ago. It's kind of interesting that that sort of mentality, you know, just get just get right to it kind of thing. It's been around for a while, evidently. Um, and he does, of course, express, Luke, as we would imagine, expresses uh, a concept uh, very similar to, to proof, basically proof. Um, something probably similar to courtroom proof or something in between maybe a courtroom proof and a statistical proof. Um, and this is at the beginning of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. Here's from the New American Standard Bible. So I'm reading, to these, to the uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, to these, these being uh, witnesses, he, capital H, so Jesus, uh, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom 
of God. Proof. We have one word for this. Okay, Greek, there's a lot of words. In this particular case, tekmiri. Tekmiri. Tekmiri or tekmiris. It's very, very soft S at the end. Um, probably, and this is not going to be some explore, deep exploration of the, into the linguistics here, but probably something, this is pretty straightforward. This is a word that has survived in a modern Greek, essentially intact. It simply means to document. Document. Like give, uh, give testimony. To document your testimony. What did you see? Document. <clears throat> ah, okay. Moving forward. We've got a couple more examples. Two, two more examples here. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Okay. Great, right, great episode recounted by Luke. Uh, what an event. Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 31. Again, from the New American uh, Standard Bible. Because he, Jesus, I should say God, Jesus God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he, he, capital H, has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is a tricky one. This is a tricky one. I researched it. And I really want to emphasize here, okay? If this topic interests you, you should really check it out on your own. And don't go off what I'm saying. Because I'm not a polyglot. I'm not an expert on this stuff. I just dug into it, researched it, read, read what I could. There was a lot of consistency, I think. So I feel confident, sort of offering you the explanation that I was able to extract from the research I did. Um, this is more of a colloquial expression in the original Greek. It has more colloquial, so that the words sort of have an interaction effect. The word, the core word here, proof, is basically piston, like a piston in a car. It's obviously spelled quite differently, but uh, it uses the Greek alphabet. So what does this mean? Well, interestingly, in this context, right, furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Uh, the best consensus I could get was something like guarantee Proof is in a guarantee. Uh, and also, quite fascinating, uh, faithfulness. Faithfulness, right? Great is thy faithfulness. Faithfulness. I thought that was really interesting. Proof is in like a guarantee, but it makes perfect sense because if, well, maybe not a guarantee, but if someone honors the guarantee, like if you have a relationship with someone and they offer you a guarantee and they honor the guarantee, they're being faithful to you, right? Not a big stretch. Okay. Little, little bit of, uh, take a little detour here, I want to mention, um, that a few years ago, not that long ago, maybe four years ago, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, I'll tell you a little bit about him in a second, gave a presentation at Caltech titled, How I Became a Christian. Caltech, okay? Um, and you can find this online, and I encourage you to check it out. It's not even a half hour, and it's, it's really good. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of insights into this and why this is so important uh, for today. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Collins survived the encounter with uh, Caltech uh, faculty and, and, and students, um, which is not that big of a surprise. I mean, uh, I, I've, been, I, I've been up to JPL, and the Caltech people are incredibly gracious, um, done some work, have some colleagues up there. This is a little while ago, incredibly good. Uh, and of course, Dr. Collins is one of the most esteemable scientists, right? modern scientist, head of National Institutes of Health, the executive director, you just call it a director, he's actually an executive director, he, he runs the whole thing, he is both a geneticist, which is clinical, and a physician, which is practicing, right, pretty amazing, uh, that's a pretty big commitment to a lot of schooling, 
Um, but in any case, so the presentation was, I think, an incredibly encouraging example of simply just talking reasonably about Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and I would say, I think in some sense, remember, this is Caltech, okay? In some sense, I think it was, the presentation was quite persuasive. The key point here is that uh, Dr. Collins was not attempting to be persuasive. That is to say, he did not establish a bar. There was no standard. There was no proof, certainly. In fact, about 22 minutes into the video, there's a few versions of it, but the short video, about 22 minutes in, he explicitly communicates to the audience there at Caltech uh, that I am not offering you a proof. Okay, this was, right, a world's greatest scientist. Um, Simply, it was almost biographical what happened and what his thinking was. He just put it on the table. Just put it on the table. Put it out there like a good scientist. This is what's going on. This is what I saw. This is what happened to me. This is what experience. This is what we measured. That, that, and the other thing. Uh, and, and, you know, very scientific presentation. A very rational person given to an audience of very rational people. Um, so, there's not many references to the concept of proof in the entire canon of the Bible. Okay, very few, very few, at least that I could find. And some of the ones in concordances that I looked at didn't even really qualify as anything close to proof. Um, there was like a real stretch. Not many, not many. But of those very small handful of proof concepts, two of the most modern uses are not uses in the modern sense of what we call a proof, mathematical proof, statistical proof, courtroom proof, logical proof, are not argumentative or persuasive at all. And I'm going to offer two examples, and that'll be about it. We're going to wrap it up here. I found this fascinating. Okay. In his, I kind of, this is something I think we kind of all know. So this is why I thought I would present it. It kind of goes into the narrative of the theme, church and science, the larger narrative of where we're headed for the series. Um, but in some ways, this is not what I expected to end up with. Um, but in some ways, it fit perfectly with the narrative, so I was quite delighted. Um, in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing the church there in Corinth um, concerning uh, the receiving visitors or representatives, it's Titus and I think a couple other people that I, I believe are unnamed, but I'm not sure, but a small cadre people that are coming to visit the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8, verse 24, again, I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, Therefore, openly before the churches, openly before the churches, show them, what? The proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Okay, this happens to be, this is another word in Koine Greek that sort of made its way to modern Greek. It means something a little bit different. Indixin. Index. Index. Actually, you can say, if you say indixin, I'll probably understand you, even though I'm not pronouncing it as well as right, I, I could be if I were a native speaker. But um, means to index. Uh, in Coin Greek, probably something like to substantiate, just like an index. An index you would find in the back of a reference book or some sort of academic book, right? Like an organization of where stuff is, right? Documentation. Substantiation and um, to demonstrate or to show convincingly. Uh, I would say quite reminiscent of what we might think of as a scientific proof. 
But, but I'll mention this again, um, in the context of love, proving, proving your love, to show convincingly. Second example. Now Jesus here is speaking uh, to his disciples essentially about their mutual faithfulness in John, book of John, chapter 15, verse 8. Very simple statement. Again, stick, be consistent here for today. New American Standard Bible. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And I'll say it one more time. If this topic interests you at all, you need to really, I'm going to advocate that you do your own research and come to your own conclusions. If you come up with something different that uh, I did and I'm presenting, you need to call me out on it. Talk, we can talk about it and see so we can learn together. Um, genesthe. Genesthe. So this is another Greek word for prove. And this is probably the most interesting. Um, the best I could, could come up with. So genesthe. Um, something like to show or demonstrate. And this, by the way, this word has not made it into modern Greek that I know of. I mean, there may be some root or something that sort of wiggled its way into common Greek now. But um, I think that this word is something that uh, sort of fell out of the Greek lexicon at some point uh, between now and 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago and now. But what this reminded me of, from the best I could tell from what people had to say about the usage here in this expression... My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It made me think of the, the line from, uh, what was it, was it, tell me if I'm wrong here, Jerry Maguire, uh, show me the money. That? Uh, of course, the metaphor sort of falls apart here because we're not talking about money. We have to make a, it's not like, because that was, right, very, that had a context, right, very materialistic context. So that doesn't really work. But it's the same type of show or demonstrate I would say, very similar from the best I can tell. But uh, maybe what we could do is I would say something like, walk the walk. You're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. So prove to be, to be my disciples. Right? Prove. To prove, to show or demonstrate, very scientific sentiment, right? What? Loyalty. So we have here, Corinthians... And, uh, and, and John, um, something like proof, a very, I would say, a very modern, something, a, a, uh, an appearance of the word proof, or something that translates into proof, that bears striking similarity to, I would say, modern sort of rigorous notion of proof, but in the context of love and loyalty. Like, this is 2020, okay? Okay, this is our job, is we're going to stick sensors on stuff, and we're going to collect volumes of data, and we're going to make our statistical arguments that may find their way into courtrooms for the sake of a defendant or a plaintiff, um, and with mounds of data, computational resources, that's our type of demonstration. Now, five short years ago when I started this series, I mentioned I was not going to be polemic. This is not a polemic series. Um, I just have very little interest in firing off or attempting to fire off a bunch of tactical salvos 
in hopes of beating down the atheist secular opposition, because they're actually not really the opposition. Um, but I will say, in all fairness, that I really admire people that have taken up this challenge. Um, and I mentioned a few people way back, five, actually five short years ago. Time goes by very quickly. I do admire people who take up this challenge, not for me, not for the, I just have a feeling that, uh, well, uh, I don't think it's appropriate for the church on Melrose, um, but I'm hoping that by now that we've made our way, uh, sort of lumbered along here to our eighth in the series over the span of five short years, that there's some glimmerings of why I'm not so interested in this, uh, this sort of engagement. So for one thing, and this has been, we've talked about this actually, I know I've, I've spoken with Damon about this and uh, with others here uh, of the congregation, the idea of proof, right? Once, once a Christian attempts to bring proof into an argument with the hopes of persuading uh, non-believers, especially non-believing scientists, right? Um, they've ultimately committed to a standard, they've committed themselves to a standard uh, from which their audience now, their opposition, popular term, popular way of thinking, uh, may select from any of a vast constellation of meanings of proof, but uh, another thing that I don't think I've ever mentioned, but it's something that, um, I, that is just inescapable to me, that um, I think that there's this lurking condescension. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to say this. There's this lurking condescension. It's sort of there, maybe a little under the surface. Um, when someone attempts like a naturalistic, uh, naturalistic reasoning in hopes of proving, quote, in quotes, proving something that is fundamentally dependent on supernatural revelation. Paul, good old Paul, salvation by faith alone Paul, right? His big proof salvo, right, was an exhortation to show love to visitors. And John, right? John, for God so loved the world, John, remember that guy? He basically tells us that God told the disciples, basically, walk the walk, right? Put your money where your mouth is? I don't know. You want to know what I think after all this? Because I didn't know this stuff in this detail, level of detail two weeks ago. I only knew it after having, because I knew I was going to be speaking here, by the grace of God and by your invitation. Uh, so I had to dig into it. So I had to commit myself to researching this. I'm a little bit surprised. But I'm a little bit, uh, I'm kind of surprised, I am surprised by this. Um, because my reaction at these two big proof salvos, modern usage of the word proof, a fairly modern-like usage of the word proof, talking about love and loyalty. I mean, Paul, of all people, Paul he should have had like a big, bright papyrus presentation when he was up on Mars Hill with a big pointy stick. And then he could have shouted down those heathen knucklehead Athenians up there and just shouted them down and put them in their place. And watch what I'm going to do here. Okay, watch. Don't, don't be offended. Okay, watch what I'm going to do here. <clears throat> and Jesus, Jesus, God Almighty... If you can pluck gold coins from the mouths of fishes, the least you could have done is spot the tuition to have some of those disciple dropouts of yours take a debate course or something, 
I don't know, at the local, I don't know, community center or something. They had to have those back then. You see what I just did there? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, did Dave, did J- Dave just use God's name in vain? There, was he using? Oh, no, he just used, that was the subject of the sentence. Okay, I guess that's okay. Uh, and that is really about it for today. In the great spirit of Tom Wolfe, one of my favorite writers, uh, you ever notice, if you ever read Tom Wolfe, there's really no ending to his books. I mean, there's kind of endings, but he just writes until he gets, you can just tell he's just like, I'm just tired of writing this story, and he just stops. There's really no ending. But we're at a really good jumping off point here for picking, picking up. Uh, if, if uh, by God's grace, you, in fact, invite me back for part nine. Um, and that's it. That's it. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, there is a small church. Very few people know about it. Even fewer have ever been there. It's a deacon, spouse, deacon, spouse, Sunday school teacher, pastor, spouse. I'm not keeping count but I think it's about 2,300 plus Sundays and as many sermons over the past 45 or so years. Hot coffee upstairs, tea. Don't understand the tea thing, but uh, got the coffee anyway. Sometimes some snacks. The hymns, nice and aligned, stacked. The Bibles, stacked. Pews are nice and clean and inviting. Beautiful sunlight coming in through the windows. 2,300 plus. I'm not keeping count. Walk the walk. Just seems so, such an alien usage of a notion like proof. Thank you for the week you gave us since the last time we were able to meet virtually or in person and listen to the word that Pastor Damon has provided as he goes through Job 2, the reboot. If it be in your will, continue to give us health, give us a soul and a heart and a mind that searches for your will. Keep us free from from harm and protect us. We pray in the name of the sacrifice you made on Calvary, your own Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.